Hi, everybody. It's Bean. Happy Weedness Day, and welcome to an all new episode of Great Moments in Weed History. Now, I realize you might not be listening to this on an actual Wednesday, but it is certainly Weedness Day in all of our hearts every time we get a chance to get together and talk about the history of this plant that we all love. And today is no exception because we have a fascinating bit of weedy history to go over with our guest, Brian Doherty, and he is the author of a new and fascinating book about the history of underground comics. That's comics with an X at the end, and that's because these comics are a little bit, or in some cases a lot of bit, naughty, and some of that naughtiness includes the love of getting lit. I recently read Brian's book called Dirty Pictures, How an Underground Network of Nerds, Feminists, Geniuses, Bikers, Potheads, Printers, Intellectuals, and Art School Rebels Revolutionized Art and Invented Comics. Let's see. I'm definitely a nerd. I'm definitely a feminist. Uh, I like to think I'm a genius, but uh, that's uh, not a widely shared opinion. Uh, I am not a biker other than bicycles, which is not what they're talking about. I am most definitely a pothead. I have certainly done some indie printing jobs. I uh, consider myself an intellectual, but maybe I'm just a pseudo-intellectual. I did not go to art school, uh, but I went to some cool art school parties in my life. So there was a lot to identify with in this book. It was a whole revolutionary way to look at this art form, and it gave us uh, some very, very interesting comics, characters, many of whom have been uh, lost to history, like, uh, of course, who could forget Dealer McDope or Captain High. And if you want to see examples of these strips and many more underground comics dealing with weed and psychedelics, please check out our Instagram. We're at G-M-I-W-H podcast, and we will be posting examples of Captain High, Dealer McDope, Sunshine Girl, and of course, the granddaddy perps of them all when we're talking about weed-inspired underground comics, and that is the fabulous Furry Freak Brothers. This is a strip that details the ongoing adventures of Freewheelin' Franklin, Phineas and Fat Freddy, collectively and affectionately known as the Freak Brothers, who made their debut in print in 1968, selling over 40 million copies of their collected adventures, which have been translated into 15 different languages. I highly recommend digging into the original comics, but there's also a new animated reboot of the fabulous Furry Freak Brothers for the modern era, and it stars none other than Woody Harrelson, John Goodman, and Pete Davidson in the titular roles. Fellas, this is going to be the greatest day of our lives. Now remember, guys, we're just three lucky freaks who won a tour of Ryan's Reefer Factory. We're not here to steal the world's only everlasting doobie. But Phineas, you said we were going to steal it. Give me that! Imagine a joint we can smoke all day, and it'll never burn out. We won't ever have to buy weed again. Welcome to Ryan's Reefer Factory. 
Now, before we get to that fascinating history of underground comics with our guests, I, I want to, as always, thank our supporters on Patreon for keeping this project of recording and sharing and honoring cannabis history alive and kicking in 2023. You can join our Great Moments in Weed History fam by going to greatmomentsinweedhistory.com and signing up to be a supporter for as little as $1 a month, or you can put five on it, or for just a little more, you can get a signed copy of my book, How to Smoke Pot Properly, A Highbrow Guide to Getting High, mailed directly to your door. At any level of support, you will get the video version of this podcast. You'll see me uh, holding up this sweet little half J I've got ready. And most importantly, every single supporter on Patreon gets access to every single episode of this podcast, including our secret seshes that come out every other Weedness Day. So you're listening to the main podcast right now. Next Weedness Day, next weed, or next week on Wednesday, if you want to be a square and possibly a narc, uh, there's not going to be anything on your podcast feed. But if you're a Patreon supporter, you'll get our secret sessions where I get lit with members of our Patreon community and talk about their greatest moments in their personal weed histories. And I gotta say, it's uh, been totally enlightening and enjoyable to share that time with this community. Last week on The Secret Sesh, we talked to a listener named Keith, who told me about his experiences in Liberia, in Africa, in the 1960s, when he was working in the Peace Corps, and lo and behold, one day, 15 55-gallon drums full of cannabis fell off of a capsized boat and washed up on shore where he was doing this uh, humanitarian work. And let's just say it's one great moment in weed history after another from there. Of the 15 drums that were on board, about 12 of them made it to shore. By the time the local gendarmery came down to see what was going on and confiscate the goods, there were about four barrels left on the shore. <laughs> so the gendarmery doing what they would normally do, they took the four barrels and took them to the jail. These are essentially the police. This is, I believe, the a police, French word yes. for police. Yes. The police, yes. What happened was is that Monrovia, which is the capital city, which is where they had to send to to bring the to bring the the, the, the main police, it was 500 miles away, three days by road. Well, as you can imagine, Three days and the four <laughs> barrels sitting in the poor jail, feeling awful, lonely, and left out. So by the time the people from Monrovia did come, there were one. <laughs> Got to leave because, them something. Because they had to have something to carry back. Now, whether or not that barrel actually made it all the way to Monrovia, <laughs> I don't know. I tend to think not. <laughs> but what happened was, the price of pot went to the bottom of the floor. I mean, it went through the floor. Normally, you would buy, basically, there were two measurements. One was a load. And a load was basically two joints worth folded up in, in typing paper. Because they didn't use any rolling paper in, 
in Liberia, the humidity would just kill it. You, you couldn't keep it going. So they would use typing paper. The best stuff was the airmail stationery. You, so you just unroll it, roll it up and smoke it. Didn't do much for flavor, but you know, it, it, it did have the effects. So you could do that or you could buy a can, which is about equivalent of an ounce. You could get that for maybe about uh, 15 to $20. Well, the price of a can went down to $5. The price of a load went from 50 cents a load to five cents a load. I mean, it, 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 it was amazing. Keith, thanks so much for sharing that story. We've got lots more secret sessions coming up every other weed on every other Weedness Day, but you will only get this podcast Weedly if you sign up at greatmomentsinweedhistory.com and support us. If you don't have the money right now, I mean $1 a month, but <laughs> if you don't have the money right now, the best way to support this show is to please tell your friends who love history and like weed or love weed and like history to come on in and get high on history with all of us. We really rely on you, the listeners, to get the word out because we are banned and blocked and squashed and trampled and uh, stifled. We really have no other way to spread the word about this show than you, our listeners. So at your next sesh, please let your friends know about the show or maybe pick up your phone right now and text a couple people. You know, just like weed itself, we are an underground phenomenon, just like the comics we are going to discuss today. And if the fabulous Furry Freak Brothers can sell 40 million copies of their comic books in a time long before the internet. We know we can do, <laughs> well, maybe not the same, but we know we can reach a lot more people with these stories of weed history if you help, and we really do thank you so. One more bit of business to attend to. I would say it's a mixing business with pleasure, and that is, of course, Getting lit. If you remember in the uh, Let's Nerd Out About Weed episode, I was putting the uh, beacon out. I'm looking for that weed with pining in it. The terpene that smells like walking through a pine forest that I remember from longer ago than I'd like to say out loud and haven't seen around. And then had it pointed out to me by one of our listeners that are longtime sponsors on this program, Tweedle Farms, actually has a strain called Pine Walker. This is a high CBD strain. I have mixed it 50-50 with some high THC weed, so I'm getting a nice one-to-one -one blend. I'm getting uh, that delicious, piney, terpy flavor and aroma that I remembered. It's, uh, you know, kind of a mellow high when you mix in the CBD. And if you want to know more about high-quality, farm-direct, high-CBD flour, edibles, topicals, and tinctures, everything that you could want, all from the true weedy people at Tweedle Farms, then go to tweedlefarms.com and use the promo code GREATMOMENTS and you'll get a 25% discount. Of course, it's going to take a little while for it to come in the mail. I don't want you to wait that long to listen to this episode, but 
what if you don't have anything at all rolled up or, or anything ready to go and you're not high and you're like underground comics i think that's cool i don't know that much about it but i'm willing to dig in but i think i'd be even more willing to dig in if i was nicely toasted man lady non-binary stoners it's all good if you've been listening to this show as long as i've been making it you know what you have to do you just have to hit pause just hit pause and use that time to roll yourself a joint or to split a blunt or to pack a bong or to endabulate a dab to rub topicals all over yourself or eat as much edibles as you consider wise and not one milligram more and i promise you one thing when you hit unpause and you are ready we'll be ready for another great moment in weed history. Welcome to Great Moments in Weed History. This is a conversation I've really been looking forward to having with you and appreciate you being our guest. Very excited to be here. Thanks for having me. So I got to say, I greatly enjoyed your book. I'm going to hold it up for our viewers, Dirty Pictures, and I love the subtitle, and I think it'll get us going here, How an Underground Network of Nerds, Feminists, Misfits, Geniuses, Bikers, Potheads, printers, intellectuals, and art school rebels revolutionized art and invented comics. Of course, the word potheads jumps out to our listeners here. Uh, but what, what got you interested in this particular history and story? I've been a comic book you know, kid in a typical American fashion since I was eight years old, you know, in the mid 70s, starting with Marvel superhero comics, uh, like so many did. And I was living in Gainesville, Florida in the mid 70s, a, a pretty big college town. You know, I would shop occasionally at a college campus associated sandwich shop, which I recall having murals painted on the wall in the style of Robert Crumb and S. Clay Wilson, um, big underground cartoonists. I got comics, you know, I read the Sunday Funnies, I read comic books, and, and seeing this imagery that like, oh, this is cartooning, this is comics, but it's it's sweaty, and it's hairy, and it's <laughs> gross, and it's a little sexy and it's a little druggy without actually even knowing what druggy meant like it scared the shit out of me so i imprinted at a very early age that underground comics were not for me it really jolts your brain and it definitely isn't not appropriate for kids like that's true and uh, so despite being like oh i'm an educated fan of the comics it was not really until my 40s that i actually started understanding oh i I don't need to be scared of this stuff. And I can write a book and tell a story about comics. And this was a story that, A, intersected my libertarian interests, because as we'll probably get into later, like this stuff was illegal 
Like the, the this stuff was dangerous. People got arrested uh, for selling these comic books. And uh, as a libertarian, I thought that was an interesting, scary cultural story to tell that in living memory, like in the 1970s, people were being dragged downtown and locked in a cage for uh, selling comics. And the underground actually felt fresh to me because I had that weird mental block that didn't get me really loving them till late in life. I just said, I, I want to I want to tell this story, and luckily I, I was able to do so and get Abrams to publish it, and here we are. Why do you think underground comics arrived when they did and had uh, the impact that they did? There's a two-part answer to that. One, as I learned by interviewing, you know, I interviewed like 80 of these creators. Like, I think it's true that every single one of them had their mind blown when they were kids by the original mad comic book. And this was in the mid-50s, right? Uh, which uh, as classically understood, a great era of conformity and, you know, popular culture was very white bread and straight laced. And, and Mad was a thing like it was a comic book and you could get it next to Archie and next to Superman. But it it had that element of parody and satire of everything that these kids understood as like their parents' world. It exposed the absurdities and hypocrisies of normal culture and and all these artists when they were between the ages of like seven and 12 were reading this so that was like the the the, the sort of soil in which it was able to grow and then in the mid to late 60s there was the general counterculture one of the biggest elements of that counterculture which predated the underground comic book was the underground newspaper you know you had a culture that was very rooted in drugs you know it was head culture was a a, a meaningful identification for this kind of culture uh, the use of marijuana the use of psychedelics i, I think there's two levels so it's like intellectually it helped them see like oh there's a lot about the world of, uh, you know, uh, the oppression of blacks and the war in Vietnam and uh, the oppression of women and the oppression of gays that I do not like. And also, I have recreational choices that literally make people want to come and arrest me. Their mind is is counter to the normal culture and the culture is telling them, and we actually want to arrest you just for like the way you see life and the way you approach life. So these underground newspapers arose in the mid 60s, and they were trying to be the sort of a twisted mirror image of a normal newspaper and normal newspapers had comics. So underground newspapers of the mid 60s started having comics as well. And Robert Crumb, who created the first actual underground comic book zap in 1968 was one of the guys who was drawing for the underground newspapers a lot of the characters uh whose stories are told in this book many not as famous as crumb but like art spiegelman kim deitch trina robbins they were all doing strips or one pagers for underground newspapers in the 50s and 60s like comic books sold millions of copies in the same way you say that now it's like okay marvel movies dominate culture back then the actual comic books dominated youth culture it was not like a weird oh you're a weird freakish geek for reading comics everyone read comics so this was like the language of their culture uh, but now we're counterculture so we're going to use that language to tell stories that are more personal that are more obscene you know, that are more druggy that are more satirical and ridiculous counterculture comics would also be a apt term to describe them. Uh, they were they came to be called underground because of their distribution system and their printing system and their illegality. You know, they were distributed 
frequently in the same places where you would buy drug paraphernalia, uh, a commercial product of the head shops uh, of that era. So even if they didn't have explicitly druggy content, it was like intertwined from the very beginning. Yeah, absolutely. I would I would recommend to listeners uh, for a, a history of that underground press movement. We have an episode about a, a gentleman named Tom Frasad who went on to found High Times Magazine, but his roots were in this underground publishing movement. I think what's really fascinating is we see the role the underground press played in that time as an early pushback against the war on drugs, uh, both uh, as a policy and just as a lifestyle choice. And what's fascinating to me is this was really, uh, these underground comics uh, really latched on to this subject. So maybe if you could talk about some of the early forms of underground comics that dealt directly with cannabis, weed, psychedelics, um, as 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 a subject, the the East Village Other uh, was uh, one of the early underground papers. It was sort of you know the even more radical than the Village Voice uh, paper in the East Village, as you noted. It was able to exist because of the great technological advance of offset printing. Uh, one of their very first, I think possibly the very first uh, strip they had was actually called Captain High. And it was uh, drawn by a guy named William Beckman, who did not go on to become a real legend in comics because he wasn't really very good at it. Uh, you know, his art was not very compelling, but uh, it, it instantly grabbed onto this notion that um, we're going to use this form that we all have understood since we're children and we're going to look through it, at it through the eyes of people who, who have had their consciousness uh, changed or expanded by pot. And there's a sequence in Captain High where, you know, there's a supervillain in a blimp riding over the East Village, grappling down into everyone's pads and stealing their stashes. You know, it was <laughs> it was not like Boo it, it Hiss. Not, <laughs> exactly. It was not it was not sophisticated, but it it, it did sort of it cracked open the notion that, oh, we can actually discuss the fact that, you know, we do drugs. Kim Deitch, who has continued to draw underground comics to this very day and is one of the greats of the form, around 67 in the East Village, others started doing a strip called Sunshine Girl. Orange Sunshine has sort of had, the, it was redolent of the notion of acid, and it was acid without ever, like, saying the word acid. Crumb became counterculturally famous very quickly and like by the end of 1968 he's like doing album covers for Janis Joplin you know he's he's a real head hero first time he actually decided to deal with a major non-underground press Viking press and they published a book of his comics in 68 and it was called head comics it, it, it couldn't you know it couldn't be more clear it's like yeah this is the imagery the way we tell stories the the texture of our ink on a page is designed to be more appreciated by people who understand the experience of being ahead um and crumb did certain things that became like famous poster imagery like a stoned again with the guy is putting his head in his hands and over the course of a bunch of panels his head is just melting through his hands you know he had a way of with pen and ink you know summoning what it felt internally to be going through uh these head experiences but these people were all kind of satirists at heart so though they were of the counterculture and in the counterculture and in the drug culture. The comics wasn't so much celebrating it. Like, you know, the Freak Brothers, you know, you're wearing their T-shirt. The Freak Brothers are the most famous and continuing, you know, marijuana-related comic. Um, these guys are goofy, you know. They're they're the Three Stooges. Uh, 
a little Marx Brothers, but more Three Stooges because they're they're goofballs. You know, it's like it's not about them being heroic. It's it's not about uh, you know the wonderfulness of of you know the drug life. It's like these. It's just classic character comedy weirdos with overblown ids and egos and idiots and you know they're constantly getting burned by dealers and you know they're constantly being fooled by norbert the narc you know it, it it was not like oh it's the dawning of the age of aquarius and it's a whole you know new age it was a little bit more satirical of the counterculture while being in it it wasn't satirizing the counterculture the way like al cap would do it or some stupid hollywood movie it was a knowing and internal uh parodying of uh the subculture but it, it was also it was also kind of heavy because as i just alluded to like the comedy of the freak brothers a lot of times were built around the dumb shit that surrounds drug culture because it's illegal it's like because it's illegal you have to be goofily paranoid and you have norbert the narc trying to fool you because it's illegal you're constantly having to worry that you're like be ripped off, you know, by your dealer. So I think, uh, you know, w- without ever being bludgeoning about it, you can buy a book that has like all the Freak Brothers all in a row and 500 pages of Freak Brothers and you read it all in a row. And I, I think it actually tells an interesting and, and, and almost heroic story about how our culture, and I think partially thanks to art like this, comedy like this, that dealt with it as, you know, this stuff is not, it's not worth a 30 million you know dollar a year whatever it is machine of repression to stop people from using it it's like it's goofy it's it's you're it you know it's it's appetite driven but it's not it's not evil and it's not destroying you it's just it's just it can be silly and i think having the millions of people who read these comics for years i i think actually did have a sort of an effect on the culture for the last few decades that has allowed America lately to be like, yeah, it's okay. We can, we can let people smoke pot. Like it's not, it's not the end of the world. It's, it's just, it's, it's one more little silly aspect of the human condition. Yeah. I think that's really uh, important to, that these, these were for the first time in jokes. And um, as you say, you know, these, these comic creators they're smart asses who who was always yeah. the person scribbling comics in the back of your class as sort of disaffected smart ass type person and so you know i like to say the fabulous furry freak brothers are role models but you have to spell it r o l l i love the the in joke thing uh, cuz i was kind of going back through my freak brothers book uh, last week and there's there's a great one where uh, Fat Freddy, as he often was, got fooled by uh, a bunk dealer into buying it's sort of a Jack and the Beanstalk thing. He's, oh, he just bought these magic marijuana seeds and they grow and like, oh, my God, you know, it's growing to the sky. And he goes up at the top and it's like, oh, no, it's a male plant. you know. Which, <laughs> so, yeah, it's very like who is going to who is going to get that punchline? Like you, you need to be in the culture to understand it. But there were other, you know, I'll say the Freak Brothers were the most famous ones and they were like the clownish version of drug culture but underground comics did have more heroic visions of drug culture as well uh one of my favorites being kind of it's a silly name as it rolls off your tongue in 2023 but it seemed great in a comic book logo back then dealer mcdope by uh, dave sheridan <laughs> uh dealer mcdope was like the cool end 
of the pot thing. He was not a goofy, you know, appetite driven clown like like Fat Freddy or a or a fecklessly ranting, you know, politico like Phineas Freak. He was a super hip dealer who like could operate planes and submarines and would constantly outdo the cops and outdo the the evil dealers and did whatever he had to do to make sure that the herb got to where it needed to go. Harold Head was another sort of more heroic image of, uh, you know, the the entrepreneurial uh, head by Rand Holmes. It wasn't like all the underground comics talked about, but it was certainly a major thing the underground comics talked about. It restricted their distribution to a sort of druggy world of distribution, and it kept authorities' eyes on them. Back then, merely telling stories about the drug culture was not enough explicitly for them to say this is obscene or illegal. But I think it's probably accurate to say that the fact that underground comics, in addition to the the sexual-related obscenity, had the drug-related poking in the eye of the culture at large, that probably led moral squads, even in cities as big and hip as like New York City and San Francisco and Berkeley, uh, vice squads were actually arresting people selling uh, certain uh, comic books in in the early 60s and 70s. Like this was a real deal. And this whole world that I wrote about in the book, Underground Comics, in the, uh, in the 2020s context, because they dealt with gender and and race at times with this sort of like smart ass white boy mentality to 60s and 70s. There's a lot of people who read these comics now and like they they do not uh, they do not pass muster with contemporary sensibilities very much. It actually kind of freshly has the power because the culture has turned to make people's like heads explode and go, I can't fucking believe someone drew this and published a hundred thousand copies of it and like sold it <laughs> to to human beings. If you go into it with that understanding, you know, you can make your own decisions about what you like, what you don't like. Uh, But what I think is interesting is when you read histories of this period of, you know, social and political upheaval in the 60s and the 70s, so often it is framed in the underground culture or the counterculture that there was this conflict between the political radicals who took politics very seriously to the point of, you know, the weather underground committing acts of domestic terrorism and the druggy culture, which was supposedly about a kind of hedonism uh, and a kind of anti-political attitude. We see this uh, conflict within the fabulous Furry Freak Brothers themselves often. Uh, But for somebody from my perspective, it's so inherently political that the war on drugs was wrong, was racist, still is, all these things, that it is oppressive, that it is everything that a counterculture should be pushing against. And I also see a role of these kinds of comics that you're talking about, the well-known ones and the more obscure, you know, I got to say Dealer McDope was a new name to me. Um, but they were bringing people in to a larger political viewpoint. And so what where did you what do you think of that sort of uh conventional wisdom that these forces were at odds and how did underground comics and particularly the ones that addressed weed and psychedelics uh represent that? You could say at odds. I prefer to say that they were two different elements of the larger youth counterculture movement then. And the underground comics were definitely on the experiential 
an expressive liberty side as opposed to explicit uh, politics. You're obviously correct that a lot of times the sort of the historiography of the counterculture does like to talk about it as being at odds. And if you actually get to the personal stories, there were some odds. There were some people like, oh, you fucking hippie, you're just getting high, you're not out there taking down the war machine or whatever. But I prefer to look at it as less at odds as in more like we're covering the waterfront. Like some of us are aiming explicitly at the political institution. Some of us are aiming our ire just at uh, the fact that we should be you know, free to be you and me, man, when it comes to our personal relationships and the things we consume and the entertainment we consume. And, uh, and obviously when you get analytical, it is all political. Like you say, it's like, okay, using drugs feels like an experiential thing, but it's also really a political thing because the fact that it's a problem in your life is because of the politics of the drug war. So it's, it's all intertwined, but um, these artists, these cartoonists certainly were less about explicit sloganeering about anything political and more about we're being who we are, we're expressing who we are uh, in, in the form of art and cartooning, and we think mainstream culture is fucking ridiculous and we're going to make fun. <laughs> as, as well, it should be made fun of. So in my reading of this book, the, the sections about Gilbert Shelton and the fabulous Furry Free Brothers really stood out one because you know that's kind of the most lasting uh of these weed related strips up to and including now a a reboot of it with big a-list hollywood talent uh voicing the characters it ran in high times for decades and they founded their own press particularly to younger listeners the idea of a physical press that makes these comic books is you know, sort of beyond the pale of understanding. So if you could help trace that history, where did such an influential comic start? How did it grow? And just physically, how would copies of it be made and distributed to reach such large numbers of people? Gilbert Shelton actually came out of the Austin, Texas scene uh, in the early 60s. He was doing cartooning for uh, University of Texas's sort of student humor magazine called The Ranger. You know, I actually talked to one of the guys who who hung out with them then, and they were talking about their use of pot in like, like 61, 62 in Texas. You know, he's like, we smoke pot, like, but we didn't all smoke pot because, like, it was serious. Like, you, if you smoke pot, you would never talk about it. You would like shut the door. You know, you put the towels under the door. Like, you were at serious risk, and not just from the law, but from just like the people around you. Because if the, they decide, you know, we're the, they're the freak brothers, right? Uh, the the concept of the freak as a self identification arose through the sixties, and it, it was one of those terms, I think, where it's being put upon us as an insult but we're going to adopt it for ourselves like there might be some you know frat boy who's beating the shit out of you because fucking freak you know and they're like yeah yeah i'm a freak right and then it becomes a freak brother so that was the atmosphere out of which shelton arose in the early 60s so it was a real psychic freedom to be able to go oh i can actually draw cartoons that acknowledge the type of people that we are and uh it's funny over the decades you know shelton talks about how He'll constantly hear from people going, oh, I know, I met the real Fat Freddy, right? I met the real Free Will and Franklin. He's like, well, there was no real one. Like, I invented them. But, like, he really, he had a great 
comic eye for the people around him. His first actual underground comic book, and it was like the second or third one that ever existed. You know, Crumb Zap one was the first. So Shelton saw Crumb did it, and then he was very quickly, like months later, uh, did his first comic book out of Austin. Uh, Both Crumb's first one and Shelton's first one were printed on a device called a multi-lift. It's very small, like it can fit on a table. So yeah, it's like you're just cranking, you're, you're, you're putting ink in a roller, and you're cranking paper through and if the cover is supposed to have four colors you have to take the same piece of paper you run it through and then you got to change the ink and you got to run it through again so like you've smushed the black ink on and now you got to smush the red ink on half of the copies are going to be fucked up the ink spattered or didn't get right and they're just doing this on a table at home you know gilbert shelton and art crumb are just doing this. And uh, so Shelton moved out to San Francisco because it was a safer and nicer place to be a freak in the late 60s than Austin, Texas. And uh, him and uh, three of his buddies from Austin, who had all ended up in San Francisco, decided to start a printing company, which they called the Ripoff Press. Uh, Part of it was just sort of like sardonic hippie humor, like, oh, we're going to rip you off. Uh, Part of it, they say, is because the ink smudges, like, and you're trying to take the paper out and all the paper stuck together. And you're like, ripping stuff off so it was a multi-level little gag and um they eventually bought like an industrial size machine one of these things that like you need a warehouse you know it's like half a city block long literally like the long-haired press man hippie who's like getting his hair up (laughs) caught in the cranking thing like that actually happened there was no big company that was going to allow them to do this like they had to be able to own the means of production themselves or they had to find, you know, people who they could just go, you know, we're going to give you a fifth of whiskey and uh, hopefully you'll ignore that we're asking you to print pictures of boobs and the word fuck. Because uh, a lot of times they didn't. Like when they did have to farm out their work to professionals, it was not uncommon that the professionals would be like, no, we're actually we're destroying all the things you just paid us to print. And we're not even giving your film back. Like we're actually just destroying all of this. Um, which is why Shelton and his people decided uh, to get their own. And then they make them and and they how do they get out in the world, right? Okay, you've, you're sitting in your warehouse in San Francisco and you have 10,000 copies of a Freak Brothers comic. How does it get out in the world? Well, you have to know the places that sell things that appeal to the drug culture. And that was what was called the head shop culture, which uh, I guess sort of the vape shop culture of today is like a mutant of it. But it you, you couldn't sell drugs there. You didn't sell drugs at a head shop, but you sold items of interest to people who did use drugs, whether it be blacklight posters or roach clips or bongs or pipes or such, or fabulous furry Freak Brothers comics. And um, some of the head shops, to get back to the legalities of it, are like one of the sort of the game that head shops had to play, especially in the early 70s, is, you know, you'd see the signs like this product for tobacco use only, right? You had to create this pretense that, you might think this stuff is relevant to illegal activities, but in fact, it's not. And you'd actually have head shop owners after a while who would go, we kind of stopped selling the Furry Fur- Fabulous Furry Freak Brothers comics because when you're selling a Freak Brothers comic book 10 feet away from the glass pipe, it becomes harder to convince the vice cop that there's no drug relevance uh, to this thing. So that actually was one of the things that hurt the underground comics industry throughout the 70s when the whole head shop culture kind of got pressured and largely uh, squozen out of existence. Um, it was an artist-owned and artist-centered business. Like even when the printer 
was not themselves an artist. Like, whereas with Marvel comics, it's like, okay, we own this character, Spider-Man, and we hire you to draw Spider-Man comic and we're in charge. Like the publishers of underground comics just took what the artists did. They printed them. The artists still owned them. Like uh, underground comics artists always own their own copyright. Uh, they actually got paid royalties in theory. You know, it was a, a weird little business and a lot of the artists feel they didn't get all the royalties they deserved. But uh in theory, they were like books. They were comic books and they were periodicals, but the business end of it treated them like they were authors and creators. And that was a very new thing in the world of comics. Like no comic artist ever owned their own stuff before. The undergrounders created the scene in which no comics can be anything you want them to be. They can be completely obscene and absurd, or they can be totally serious and adult. And so the fact that major publishers publish graphic novels now and you can win prominent literary prizes for comics like none of that would have happened without uh the undergrounds culturally the way it happened it's like the 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 insanity blasted away the space in which the serious important stuff could happen though i i also i think the insanity especially with comics can can be as vital as the serious important stuff yeah and it, it sort of brings to mind a parallel with weed itself in that you know we are clearly in well into this era of corporate cannabis and and i don't think that they control cannabis i think this plant has proven in many ways its ability to be uncontrollable uh and irrepressible but somebody kind of jumping into the world now and walking into a dispensary that looks like an Apple store and buying a consumer packaged good with fancy branding and a celebrity spokesperson might think that that's the trajectory that weed has always been on if they had no cultural history of it. But all of that was built not just by underground people, but by people at odds with the law in the same way that people were arrested for putting out these underground comics. Many, many, many more people uh, were arrested for growing and sharing and selling weed. And the other really interesting parallel is that all of this underground publishing did not go unnoticed by the authorities. And it wasn't just the passive, oh, you might get busted if you put this uh, material out. It was a coordinated campaign by the FBI and other levels of law enforcement to target these underground newspapers and some of the underground comics because they did not like the message. Well, we have something called the First Amendment in this country that prohibits theoretically the authorities from targeting you for your speech. But the war on drugs allowed those authorities at the same time to target the underground press for drug busts and the people who worked in the underground press for drug busts and was a major force in curtailing this entire underground press movement from hundreds of sort of thriving underground newspapers all over to the country in a very short period of time that was winnowed down to a, a just a handful. So when would you say this movement of underground comics reached its peak? And what were the factors that uh, led to its decline? The decline question is easy. And it's what we we're just talking about. It's like when the head shop 
world, especially like it was kind of fading through the late 70s. And there was a, a famous Supreme Court decision in 73 called the Miller case, which any Supreme Court is very complex, but sort of the, the rubber meets the road is the Supreme Court declared that obscenity standards did not have to be nationwide. They could be local. So it's like, okay, yeah, people in San Francisco may think this is no big deal, but uh, people in Schenectady are going to be freaked out by this. So the DA in Schenectady can arrest the comic seller or whatever and go, yeah, this is obscene. So that put the fear of God into a lot of the dealers, the, the, the people selling the comics. They're like, we don't we don't need this trouble, especially if they're running head shops. It's like, we're in enough trouble to begin with. Like, we don't need the extra trouble of selling these comics. And then at the dawn of the Reagan era, like the whole head shop model got really smashed. So by that time, they lost their distribution model. But what, what happened to them throughout the, I think artistically, they were flourishing through the mid to late 70s. And one of the things that happened is as the the counterculture got more mainstreamed, underground comics didn't rely so much on, you know, drug humor or psychedelic imagery. They, they started thinking more about, oh, we've sort of established you can do anything with comics. So let's let's do anything. Let's do, you know, let's do gay comics. Let's do women's comics. Let's do uh, lesbian comics. Let's do historical comics. Let's do autobiographical comics and uh, sort of everything that's made as I alluded to earlier, comics as like a respectable literary form now all arose out of the underground kind of shifting away from uh, the dominant uh, drug model. And then, you know, at, at this point, what was distinct about them kind of like sort of seeped in to culture at large to the degree that you didn't need this specialized form sold in these specialized places to tell stories that uh, dealt with the drug culture in either a funny or a serious way. Like you could, you could kind of do it anywhere. Like you could actually Saturday night live in the late seventies had a lot of humor that it's like, Oh, this would have been an underground comic in 1971, but now it's on NBC in 1977. Uh, it, they sort of like won the cultural battle in a sense, and then it it, it killed them as a distinct little uh, marketing niche. Uh, but but also culturally, their aesthetic innovations kind of spread everywhere. So it's like they both won and they lost. Like they 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 died, and yet their spirit over overtook us all. Is is a one way to put it. Uh, one might say uh, it's like seeing a deadhead sticker on a Cadillac in a certain way. <laughs> yeah, um, like, like seeing like a, an R. Crumb <laughs> page on a museum wall, which, yeah, that happened. Like R. R Robert Crumb is now a gallery artist whose stuff sells for six figures. Now, Robert Williams, one of his Zap colleagues, sells his lowbrow paintings for, you know, half a million dollars. And Williams is a great character in the book. And he actually said something to me that I think is very relevant to us. He's talking about, he actually, you know, I should have brought this up earlier because he definitely is on the side of like, the political aspect of the counterculture, he's like, that wasn't it. It's like people look back now and think, oh, it's the Vietnam War, it's the Vietnam War. It's like, not the Vietnam War. It was like, because we like to use drugs. And he was in LA then. He's like, and you know, Sheriff Parker, whatever, Chief of Police Parker, like had his guys out there who just wanted to kill us all because we used drugs. And like, you were just taking your life in your hands being out in public with any sort of identifying feature that would make an LA cop think that you're a freak. It's like, it was like, Nazi Germany. And he's like, what did he say? He said, like, when you were buying pot from someone in 1964, he's like, you weren't buying it from some, you know, campus intellectual. Like, the guy you're buying pot from, 
he was holding up the gas station the night before. You know, this was <laughs> this was a world of criminals. Like, and it actually is. It, it's a you alluded to this earlier. It's like so much about American culture that becomes normalized and accepted and sort of part of the fabric of life. Like, if it involves a change, it started with criminals. Like, it started with people who are like, we are willing to take any risk to do something that the world is telling us not to do. And then twenty years later, the whole world is doing it. You know whether. It's uh, criminals are important, not not violent criminals <laughs> per se, but the, the the mentality that I'm willing to push back against a culture that wants to crush me, and I'm gonna put up the middle finger to them and do what I want anyway. Like it's it's how all interesting things happen. Yeah, capitalism is gonna commodify your descent. If it's successful, if you're selling all these comics, eventually the larger economic forces are going to notice. They're going to want a piece of that action. And in essence, by getting involved, they're going to bring the values of capitalism, corporatism into it. We've seen that with weed. It's quite clear. It's happened in a very short period of time in a way where people can easily remember the before times and and where we are now, I think there was an anti-authoritarian nature to this whole movement in publishing that, in essence, authority itself was being challenged. And then the specific ways that authority was being expressed, the drug war as one, the suppression of so-called obscene material, this uh, war of colonialism in Vietnam. Well, those were all expressions of the authorities and the anti-authoritarian strain in these comics is one of their biggest selling points. And there wasn't really a lot of other games in town if you wanted material that challenged the authorities. There's certainly a way now to look at what would be the biggest expression of comics. The Marvel movies have this outsized cultural impact. And yet I find them not only not challenging authority, but quite the opposite. And they seem like military industrial propaganda at times. Yeah. Yeah. Like I still, like I said, I read that I've read that stuff as a kid. So I have a soft spot in my heart for it. But yeah, if you, uh, a sort of a cold eyed political analysis of Marvel movies, you can really say this CIA op, uh, uh, these movies, yeah, it's a vision of like, okay, rich industrialists building powerful technology that's going to crush anyone who who goes out of line. Yeah, it's a weird world. But, you know, comics, in the bigger picture, like, uh, as a comics guy in general, like, I think, okay, comics did this one thing for our culture. They did the superhero thing, and that's that. And they also did the thing we're talking about. You know, they, 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 they busted open realms of expression and realms of rebellion and normalizing drug culture in a way that that I think has had genuine positive effects. And I mentioned in my book, like three prominent underground cartoonists in the 60s and 70s, we're talking about the cap- the corporatization of it, drew, and it seemed like a parody at the time, but they drew like labels, like sort of imagining this world where pot could be sold as a branded labeled product. And, you know, Dave Sher and Robert Williams and Rick Griffin all at various times, designed pot labels. And I've, I've never been able to verify this, but some people have told me that, oh yeah, some dealers actually literally used them 
in the late sixties. The drug world is full of of myths. So I, I I never the coolest stories in the drug world. You're never sure if they're exactly true. Uh, but at any rate, like that world came true. It's like they imagined a world where pot was a product, and and now it is. And like the, there's something lost in that. I guess. I mean, I'm from the libertarian world. I'm I'm pretty pro capitalism in general. I I don't have bad emotions about oh, big businesses behind this, because like it's obviously preferable to a world where people get arrested for stuff. And if you believe that these substances, you know, pot especially, has value, like things got to be sold. You got to, you know, for people to have something, someone has to sell them. And uh, sometimes that's going to be uh, a big corporation. I want to mention also, we've been talking about pot, like the underground comics, there were acid-themed underground comics. Look up El Perfecto comics. It was actually a benefit comic for Timothy Leary when uh, he needed legal defense. There was a, a heroin comic called Tough Shit, and that was actually a benefit for a methadone clinic, so it had a sort of dark-eyed view of comics. Uh, up through 82, there was Cocaine Comics, which was actually written by uh, George DiCaprio, whose son Leonardo is uh, now a very uh, famous actor. A lot of these comics are sort of collectible artifacts that are hard to find, as with a lot of things in the internet age if you nose around you know someone might have scanned their copy of it and you know if you want to read the underground you can nose around online and you know some modern comics publishers like fantagraphics publish these old pamphlets and 50 dollars hardcover editions now and you know some of them are on gallery walls rebel culture uh, i think for the best you know deadhead sticker on cadillac like it it it, it does get normalized and, and we should sort of cheer that because if you believe that it was valuable like what was valuable about it like can't be that it was a special little secret for you know the few like it feels good to be part of the few and like you know this cool thing but like if you actually think it's cool you sh you should be okay with with it getting to the cadillac level i think well i think what's cool about weed culture right at this moment in a way is that it's uh all of the above um, there are still very much, I'm, I'm not giving away any secrets, there are still very much people up in uh, Northern California, Humboldt County, uh, living that outlaw grower lifestyle. Half this country and most of the world, cannabis is still illegal. So uh, you did not miss the era of underground weed. You can jump right into it. Uh, uh, please be cautious at your own risk. Um, and if you fancy yourself as the next CEO of a billion dollar weed company, um, you know, throw us some money here at the podcast, but that avenue is is open. And I think DIY culture, as it relates to comics, uh, that idea that they do it yourself, um, has really just kind of shifted to the internet. And I, and I wonder, I, I kind of to bring it home, is there anything in our culture now where you see the energy and the spirit of this underground comic movement sort of maybe in a different form in the sense that i consider the real essence like i don't consider the real essence that oh it involved it was about drugs or it involved drawing sex like that that was the tool that allowed comics as an art form to grow up it's like we have to prove that comics uh, can do anything so now it's actually like it's on bestseller lists it's in any bookstore you go to and now like Pantheon and Farrar Strauss Garot were publishing graphic novels and graphic memoirs and just the fact that you can read interesting, creative, personal comics anywhere from you know, people who are doing it online with no audience to people who are selling, you know, 
20,000 copies at a bookstore. Like it was, it was really just the victory of comics as an art form. And it's everywhere now. It's like I said, it's like, it's like, you know, Obi-Wan Kenobi being killed or whatever. It's like now their spirit is everywhere. And, and, you know, the art Spiegelman, the, the mouse guy who came from the underground, it's like that was his mission. Like he was like, I, I believe since I was a kid that comics are as good an art form, as good a storytelling form as anything. And I want to make the culture believe that. And, he started, you know, with farting Buddhas and talking turds and, and uh, you know, went on to drawing his father as a cartoon mouse and went to Pulitzer. And now comics are serious, comics are respected, and comics are everywhere. You can watch the fabulous Furry Freak Brothers uh, on your television in, their, in a new iteration starring John Goodman and... Uh... Woody Harrelson is, is one of the voices. Yeah, who's the guy from, who's the guy from SNL who dates everybody? No, Pete Davidson. Yes. Pete Davidson. Yes. Okay. So you yeah, can that airs on Tubi.com, uh, you know, for those uh, <laughs> who get lost in the streaming world. Uh, I think it's actually free. It's one of those free apps. Yeah, the stuff it, it didn't it, it it didn't go away. Like they 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 tried to kill it, but it it was interesting and people loved it and 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 things that people love are going to survive. And I hope in writing my book, I helped sort of extend the memory and the understanding of it. That's why I did it. Absolutely. And I just want to say thank you so much for writing that book. It was, uh, above all else, a very entertaining read, but also incredibly informative, well-researched, and inspiring. Inspiring to anybody, I think, who is into art and free expression. And I am inspired myself to conclude this afternoon with uh, an old-school sativa joint i'm gonna pull my copy of the fabulous furry freak brothers omnibus off the shelf and uh have some laughs and dip into that wonderful era of weed history brian thank you so much for coming on the show thanks for having me i really appreciate it well that's the show folks thanks so much for listening and if you stuck around this long please consider supporting us on patreon you could put five on it at greatmomentsinweedhistory.com, and that would really help us as we research, write, edit, and publish a new episode every Weedness Day. Great Moments in Weed History is written, produced, and performed by me, David Beanstock, a.k.a. Bean. Special thanks to our sponsor, PAX. Go to PAX.com and use promo code GREATMOMENTS, all one word, for a big discount at checkout.